Today I'm going to be talking about one of the most, in fact, I think the most important subject and yet the most obscure subject that's almost never preached. And it's the baptism of Holy Ghost fire. The baptism of Holy Ghost fire. And I'm going to show you in just a few minutes why this experience, if you are saved, is something the Bible says will happen in your life. Now, if that's going to happen in our life, I think it behooves us to know what's going to happen. I'm not going to preach a preachy kind of sermon with a lot of humor in it because this is a very serious message. Glenn, I've never labored as much as I did last night. I laid awake almost all night long arguing with God. I didn't want to preach this message. But I am convinced after having been here yesterday and talking to this person and that person about wars and troubles and hurts and problems that this message will illuminate your eyes and touch your heart and give you hope for tomorrow. So to start, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. And when you come to hear me preach, be sure to bring an ink pen. How many of you have an ink pen? Raise your hand. You need to take notes. Be sure to bring your ink pen. You don't bring an ink pen, that's like a deacon coming without his cigarettes. Now, you know you got to have your ink pen. <laughs> Our Lord says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 49, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, this is not talking about water baptism. He's already been baptized by John. It's not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that was signified by the dove descending from heaven upon him at the Jordan River. So what baptism is it talking about? It's talking about a time in his life yet in the future that Jesus is going to be baptized with what I call the baptism with Holy Ghost fire. Is there anything else in the Bible about that? Yes, there is. Turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. And I want you to follow what John says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I want you to say that out loud with me. Say it out loud. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now read it again. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Look at me a minute. In the Greek in which the New Testament was written, there's a grammatical structure that we don't have in the English. It's where somebody can say something to a person historically to that person, but then it's going to be said about every person who follows that person thereafter. 
And that's what you have here. Literally, one translation says, not he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire, but he shall baptize you with Holy Ghost fire. Now listen. Are you listening? Say, we're listening. That grammatical structure is being used. And so what it actually is saying is this. John is saying to those who are on the riverbank, Jesus is coming. When you accept him, he's going to baptize you with Holy Ghost fire. But he wasn't only saying it to those on the riverbank. He was saying it to Glenn Denton in Lebanon, Tennessee in 2017 and to Pastor Mike and to me and to Erica and to every person who will ever follow Jesus thereafter. The Bible categorically says you will be baptized with Holy Ghost fire. So I think we ought to look at it. Let us begin by looking at Matthew chapter 20, if you will, please. Jesus is speaking here. And I want you to see what the Bible says. Chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to underline that. That is actually, actually a contradiction. She was worshiping him, but desiring something of him. Now, I want you to look at me. You don't worship God when you're asking anything of him. You worship God when you just want to be in the presence of God. If all your worship is is asking God for something, you're not worshiping him. When you worship him, you're just in his presence because you want to be in his presence. Where do you go to ask something of God? You go into your closet and there you pray privately and then he will reward you openly. That's the place you ask of things of God. But when you worship God, you just want to be in his presence. You're not asking anything. Don't you remember what they told us in 2 Chronicles? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my what? Say it out loud. Seek my what? Not his hands. Not his hands. You're seeking the hands of God when you want him to do something for you. What can a face do? A face can only do two things. Either show you pleasure or displeasure or communicate. But a face can do nothing else, folks. When you seek the face of God, that's true worship. When you want to know whether God is pleased with you or whether he frowns upon you or whether he wants to communicate something to you. But for heaven's sakes, folks, don't confuse worship with asking. But she came. And this is what she said. She was a member of a lot of Baptist churches. I've got a problem, Lord, but I've got it all figured out. All you got to do is sign it and make it happen. Now, my friend Peter Lloyd says, that's not the way it operates, folks. You're supposed to take a blank sheet for a contract and you sign it and let him fill in the blanks. But we don't do it that way. We get it all figured out. Don't you sometimes have your life all figured out? She came desiring, praying something of him. Let me ask you a question. 
take a look at this woman for a minute and consider your past. She came and said, Lord, I've got two sons and I've got it all figured out. You just put one on your right hand, one on the other hand, and my problems are solved. I wonder how many women have done that that are seated right here today. You were looking for Mr. Wright, and you finally found him. And you said, oh, God, I finally found the man of my dreams. All you got to do is make it happen. I've done the hard work. I've already found him. Now, God, he's what I want. Honey, he's not for you. Wait a minute, God. He has already promised me that though he doesn't go to church anywhere and he hasn't for 20 years and he hangs out at the bars, he's going to start going to church at Hillcrest every Sunday morning and Sunday night. He's already promised that, Lord. He's not for you. Well, I know he slept with every woman in two counties, but he's going to quit that, Lord. He's not for you. Have you seen his picture lately, God? Isn't he handsome? He's not for you. And she went ahead in spite of the injunction of the Lord and married that man against God's will and then woke up several years later and said, oh my God, I wish you had not answered my prayer. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you seated here had it all figured out? There was a problem in your life. You had it all figured out. And God chose not to answer your prayer. And you look back and you say, thank God Almighty, he didn't answer that prayer. Raise your hand. Sometimes the worst thing in this world that God can do is to answer your prayer. Because I remember what Romans 8 says. Romans says you don't have sense enough to know what to ask. I hate to insult your intelligence, but you don't know what to ask for. Can I tell you something? And I'm an academic as well as a preacher. I got news for you. There's not a prayer book that can tell you how to pray. (laughs) Why? Because Romans already said you don't know how. What Romans say to do? Kick it over to the Holy Spirit. And let the Holy Spirit figure out what's best for you. (laughs) So look at it again. Here's this woman. She's coming. She said, I got it all figured out now. And then I want you to see what happens. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? Use this word baptism again. There's a baptism involved. Are you ready for that? Oh, yes, Lord. If all I got to do is drink a cup and be baptized, well, yeah, man, I can do that. Really? Really? Turn over to Acts chapter 12. Let's see the rest of this story. There's There's a continuation of this story. Look at Acts chapter 12. When you got it, say, I got it. Verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Hey, mama. Hey, mama. Are you in the crowd somewhere? Do you see what's happening You made a deal with Jesus. 
I'll be baptized without baptism. Just give me what I want. All right, that's part of the deal. One of your sons, look at him, kneeling in front of the executioner's box. Watch the gleam of that sword in the noonday sun coming down, severing his head from his body and it bouncing like a hideous bloody ball across the cobblestone. Were you aware that's part of the deal? And sometime later, there's a knock at her door. Man, I know you lost a son to the executioner. I don't know how to tell you this. Your other son, we've gotten word he was boiled in oil. We don't know whether he's alive or well. Hey, mama, you want to make a deal with Jesus? I want to tell everybody in this building, there is a lie that's going across America that if you're living for God and filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll never have another problem. You'll never be hungry. You'll never be sick. You'll never have problems. I want to tell you right now, there is for the believer a baptism of Holy Ghost fire. Now, what was it for Jesus? He said, I have one to be baptized with. Preacher, what is that Holy Ghost fire, baptism? I'm fire you talking about. What is it? May I ask you a question? What was the primary reason Jesus came to earth incarnate? To die at the cross, wasn't it? Satan was determined to do everything that he could to stop Jesus from the primary task for his being here. And his last stand was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus cried and he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Jesus was the perfect son praying to the perfect father. Now you would think, that if a perfect son only asked one thing of the perfect father, the perfect father would grant it, wouldn't you? But he didn't. But he didn't. But there's something you may have missed. He didn't give him what he wanted, but he sent an angel to walk with him as he went through it. I don't care what you're going through, friend. There's an angel somewhere. But what was that baptism of Holy Ghost fire? It was when Jesus was at Calvary and Satan was doing every single thing that he could do to keep him from fulfilling the primary mission of his life and that was to die at Calvary as a ransom for our souls and he was doing everything that he could do to keep him from accomplishing that. You know what you and I would have done if we'd have been in that garden of Gethsemane, Glenn? Jesus, we're not going to let you die tomorrow. Glenn, get a couple of horses out there. If he doesn't want to go, we're going to drag him out of here. We're not going to let those Romans kill Jesus. We're just simply not going to do it. I want to say something to every one of you. 
Remember, John said it's going to happen to you. If you're saved, there's going to come a time in your life, if it hasn't already, where Satan is going to try his dead level best to get you to quit on God. It may be sickness. It may be financial despair. It may be a broken marriage. It may be people not understanding. I don't know what it is, but John said at the baptism of Jesus, you shall be baptized with Holy Ghost fire. There will be a time in your life Satan will try to get you to quit. Jesus is an example. Let me tell you folks something. Your pastor and I would do everything we could. You would too, wouldn't you, brother? To drag him out of the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, he's healed our loved ones. He's brought blinded eyes back to sight. He's never done anything wrong. If he won't take care of himself, we're going to do it for him. What's the lesson there? Listen, don't think about the person in the next. I'm preaching to every one of you. I'm preaching to you, Glenn. I'm preaching to you, Pastor. Eric, I'm preaching to you. If you haven't already had that Garden of Gethsemane experience, that baptism of Holy Ghost fire, it's on your calendar out there somewhere. And this is the lesson. When you're going through it, don't listen to your family and friends. They will give you the wrong advice because they love you too much. They're tired of seeing you suffer. How many preachers have got here? Raise your hands. Why don't you just quit that church? I don't like seeing you being beaten up on. They're taking advantage of our family. You don't have enough family time. Leave it alone. Quit them. That's what your family says. You better not listen to your family. You better not listen to your colleagues. He went to James and John. What's wrong with them? They were asleep. Can I tell you something? Your colleagues can't understand what you're going through. Your colleagues can't understand it. They'll say, we'll pray for you, but they don't know how, how much you hurt. When you're going through your own personal garden of Gethsemane, of Holy Ghost baptism of fire, you've got to go it by yourself only with the assistance of the blessed Son of God, and that's it. That's right. That's right. Mm-mm. If you've never read the book, Hearing God by Peter Lord, you ought to get it. Hearing God by Peter Lord changed my life many, many years ago. Peter Lord said to me something one time. You really want to know God? You're looking at a man, I I want to know God with all my heart. That's not preacher talk. I'm telling you, I want to know God. I want to know him. I want to know him in all of his fullness. He said, Harold, you really want to know him? I said, yeah. Ask him to put you in a place that unless he saves you, you're doomed. Preacher, I want to know him so bad. 
I did that. I did it. Everywhere I had gone up to that point, I had a golden touch. My ministries boomed. Any kind of business interest, everything. And after I talked to Dr. Lord, he took me to Luke chapter 14. Would you turn over there to Luke chapter 14 with me? Verse 33. Raise your hand, preachers. Are you here? I'm going to speak heart to heart to you. This was a verse that God laid on my heart. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus had a lot of followers, but he only had actually 11 disciples that had power and miracle ability. And I wanted to be a disciple. I don't want to be a stinking follower. I want to be somebody with power with God. So I took this to one of the greatest Bible teachers. If I mention his name, many of you would know. I said, what does this verse mean? He said, it doesn't mean what it says. I said, good Lord. God gave me this verse and now you tell me it doesn't mean what it says. If it doesn't mean what it says, what does it mean? He said, it means you've got to be willing to forsake. And I may just be a dumb Tennessee preacher, but that's not what it said. It didn't say you've got to be willing to forsake. He said, he that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You know what I did? I gave whatever money I had, I gave it to God. If God came in here and said, empty your bank account and get, I'm telling you, y'all can say, no, nah, you wouldn't do it. I'd do it. My, my money doesn't belong to God anymore. It belongs to him, to me. It belongs to God. You know what else I did? I took some olive oil. I, I poured it on the mantle of my fireplace. I gave my home to God. If God said, sell that thing and give it away, I'd do it. I know it. I'm convinced of it. I went out and poured olive oil on my automobiles. I did everything but I still didn't have power with God. Now, you listen to me. Boy, we can talk about power. By the way, do you know what the anointing of the Holy Spirit is? Do you have any idea what it is? I'm going to tell you. You know what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is? You know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you know what it really is to be anointed with the Holy Spirit? I struggled with that and, and checked the commentaries out because nobody's going to tell you what the anointing is. I'm going to tell you. And I learned it from my wife. We had two little boys, and I was struggling. What is the anointing of the Holy Spirit? And I saw how she was such a mother to him, and it suddenly occurred to me just like that, Eric. The anoint, you better write this down. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is a special touch of God to do a special thing for God at a special season in your life. That's what the anointing of the Holy Spirit is. It's a special touch of God to do a special thing for God at a special season in her life. And in the season of my wife's at that time, her primary reason for being here was to be a godly mother to our two boys. Look at me. There was a time that I was anointed to be a pastor when I was pastor of North Jacksonville. 
I know how to be a pastor. Listen, I know intellectually how to be a pastor. I doubt there's anybody in this room knows more how to be a pastor than I do. I've had small churches. I've had mega churches. But guess what? I woke up one morning and I realized I don't have an anointing to be a pastor anymore. My anointing is to be an evangelist. I'd be a fool to go back with all this head knowledge and try to be a pastor when I don't have that anointing anymore. It's a different season in my life. Y'all understand that? I don't know whether I'm getting through to you or not, but I'm not going to entertain you with jokes. I'm trying to talk heart to heart to you. But I forsook my money. I forsook my home. But I still didn't have power with God. And listen, guys, you can talk about it. But if you don't have the power of God on you, you know that you don't have the power of God on it. So I made, I, I made my decision. There's no such thing anymore as the dynamic power of God. Now, I would have never told the church that, but I, that's what I really thought. That's what I really thought. You know Why? Okay, preachers, are you ready? Say, we're ready. Are you really ready? Say, we're ready. I could forsake everything but my ministry. You know how you can know when you're forsaking something, you don't worry about it anymore. You got an old beat-up car. Windshield wipers don't work. Doors don't work. You take it and trade it. You get a brand new car. Six months later, you never give a thought to that other car because you have forsaken it. You don't worry about the windshield wipers. You don't worry about the wind engine. And I'm going to tell you something, men. If you're worried about your ministry, whether you're ever going to have another church or what you got, whether the deacons are ever going to understand, whether anything's going to go right, if you're scared every time you go to a business meeting, I got news for you. You haven't forsaken everything. You have forsaken everything for your ministry, but you haven't forsaken your ministry. Some of you men need to go apologize to your wives and your children. Your wife will make you a perfect meal after you've been gone all day long. And you go in and just before you're ready to sit down and eat, some backslidden church member has a third cousin down in Memphis in the hospital with a toe ache and you jump up from that table and head off to take care of that. God is no more in that than anything. He's not in that anywhere. You're doing it simply because you don't want to be criticized. And then you wonder why you don't have power with God. But I couldn't forsake my ministry. I tried to forsake my ministry, so I just gave up on it. Now, I'm going to share something with you that I've never shared before. And I've preached thousands of times. I've been in the ministry 55 years. But I'm going to tell you about my baptism with Holy Ghost fire. I wanted to forsake my ministry. Keep that in mind. I was pastoring North Jacksonville Baptist Church where Dr. Revis is doing a good job now. But we were in a downtown area, bad neighborhood. We seated about 1,200 in that old building. I started having two services a day, then I had to have a third early bird service. Our people were parking in driveways and 
People were getting angry, and so we knew we had to move. We didn't have the money to move. We had to move. I felt absolutely convicted of God we needed to move. We also had at that time a very, very regularly watched television ministry. In fact, Arbitron Rating said we were the most watched religious program in the North Florida area, and the third most hour was the hour we had, which was 10 o'clock on Sunday evening, which is 9 o'clock here. And the reason is because, not because I'm a great preacher, but people are getting ready to go to school the next day, getting ready to go to work, and so they're at home, they turn the television, and they see it. I did a series of messages on moral issues in Jacksonville. There's a huge Anheuser-Busch down there. I preached on alcohol one night and said Anheuser-Busch is selling a product into the hands of our young people that actually for them is nothing more than liquid hell. I named a couple of hospitals that were involved in abortions, a couple of hotels that were involved in special accounts for homosexuality. And then I talked about ungodly politics in Jacksonville and mentioned names. I just want to know you something. I'm just telling you right now, there's one thing for sure you'll never hear after you hear me preach. Two good old boys out on the porch, not one's not going to look at the other and say, I wonder what he meant. <laughs> Two weeks after that series was over on a Saturday night, doorbell rang. I looked out. It looked like every police car in Jacksonville was on my lawn. They came in and said, there's a contract been taken out on your life. Probably going to happen in the morning while you're preaching in your church on television. And I'm going to tell everybody here something. The same world that hated Jesus is going to hate you. When I went to church the next day, there was a SWAT team on the roof, undercover policemen in the choir. For the next month or so, I had a policeman literally by my side in my office. If I went to the men's room, he went with me. He was in our home at night. My wife was threatened to be raped. My two children, one of them four and the other 11, we thought had been kidnapped. They tried to destroy me in every way that I could and finally I turned it over to the Attorney General and I had a meeting. You don't turn something over to the Attorney General unless you're clean as a whistle. And the Attorney General came to me and said, I gotta have a talk with you. And I said, all right. We, we know a lot of them that are outside the church. I gotta tell you something. You've got some real serious enemies that are in leadership positions in your church and a couple on your staff. And they're trying to destroy you. And he said, I want to tell you, this group of people, both inside the church and out, I've never seen anybody, that they, any group, so actively and aggressively trying to destroy a man like they're trying to destroy you. They came after me and everything because our church was booming financially. They tried to get a story out that I'd taken money. They tried to hire a prostitute to say that I was ungodly. All of this was proven. 
and I was totally exonerated. But right in the middle of all of that, folks, are you listening? Say we're listening. I have a terrible blood disease. Mayo Clinic says I'm the only one with it. If I fall out here and knock a tooth out, it's very likely I would bleed to death before you get me to the hospital. I bled 121 pints of blood in eight days on one occasion. And right in the middle of all of that, I began to have pains in my chest. I came to Nashville, Tennessee and looked at my specialist. He said, I'm quite sure you have cancer. The tumors are bad. We can't operate on you because you're a bleeder. But if we don't operate, you're going to die. I said, give me a few days to think about it. I went with my wife to the Smoky Mountain, just the two of us, for what I considered would be the last time we'd ever be together. Have you got your seatbelt on? Y'all going to get one and get up and walk out when I tell you what I did. You're going you're gonna to say, I don't want anything to do with that guy anymore. I can take you to the very spot where the day before the surgery, because what we were going to do is see how fast he could go in and get those tumors out and try to limit the bleeding. I said, okay, I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well do that, make an effort. Erica, I went up to a tree. I can take you to it at the Smoky Mountains. And I said, God, I'm through with you. I've told everybody, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. God, it's not working. And I'll never preach another lie because I don't trust you anymore. I'm done. Yeah, my mama gave me to preach before I was born, but when I walk off this mountain, I'm not a preacher anymore. My wife was worried to death. The next morning, the surgeon came in and said, we got to run some tests to see how quickly we can get in there and get out to keep you from bleeding. I'll be back in about an hour. Hour went by, more tests. Another hour went by. Around two o'clock, he came in, said, we're not going to operate. I said, I knew it. I meet up. I probably won't make it out of the hospital. He said, no, we can't find any cancer. And I took my wife and I started crying. And I went down a hallway. Brother Glenn, there was a little chapel there. And I went in and got on my knees and I said, God, I don't understand anything. He said, simple. You know what I mean when God speaks to your heart? You wanted to give up your ministry. You did finally yesterday. If you want it back, go back up to that tree and get it. But if you don't want it back, let me have it and I'll take care of it. I said, that's a good deal. 
I went out in the hallway, Marilyn said, well, since we're not going back to Jacksonville, where are we going? I said, we're going back to Jacksonville. Why? I said, it's not my ministry anymore. She said, did you, have you quit? I said, yesterday. And I ain't never, I don't have a ministry, folks. Look at me. I appreciate you talking about my, I don't have one anymore. I hate to tell you that. God's got it. I gave it to him. It's his. I'd go into my office, brother, and I'd sit down. I used to sing sometimes with Hovey Lister and some of them gospel music. Y'all remember them? It gets sweeter as the days go by. It gets sweeter as the moments fly. My ministry of music went out to a psychologist. We got the church. said, I think it's finally got to him. He's, he's lost it. <laughs> and that psychologist walked in. He said, I need to talk to you. I said, why? Well, evidently you've had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Everything's going on and you seem happy. I said, I am happy. I gave my ministry to God. We relocated that big church. We built a Christian school. It ended up with 600 students in it. We had the finest daycare center that you can find down there. Our television ministry exploded. We started baptizing people left and right. And God took care of the enemies. I won't tell you how, but he took care of them and they suffered awfully. I got to hurry. One day, one of them called me. I want to apologize to you. I know you'll never forgive me for what I did. I was a part of those that tried to destroy you, but I want to ask you to forgive me. I said, I forgive you. You remember when the prodigal son came back and they had fatted calf. You know what that means? Let me tell you what that means. In those ancient days that one man did another man wrong and he went and apologized and the innocent man said, now let's have fatted calf. It meant three things. I'll never mention this thing that separated us ever again. I'll never let it be mentioned on my property by anybody. And I'll never let anybody accuse you about it again. You know, that's good about God too. When God saves us, we have fatted calf. And he says, I'll never mention that sin again. And I'm not ever going to let it be mentioned on anything that I own, and he owns it all. And I'll never let you anybody accuse you. You know, the devil tries that all the time. So I told this man on the phone, I said, I got to go buy a plane ticket. And he said, why? I said, I got to fly to Florida. I don't know where to find fatted calf. There's a steak and ale restaurant near you. We'll pretend that's fatted calf. That man that once tried to destroy me would today lay down his life and defend me. But that was my, that was my Holy Ghost baptism of fire. How many of you can think back and remember when you went through yours, raise your hand. How many of you are right now today going through one and now you know what's happening to you? All right, I got to close. But I got a verse that just ought to knock you out of that pew. 
I, if we had Pentecostals, they'd be just bouncing all over the ceiling. But you know, I'm, I'm preaching the Baptist. I got to do the best I can. But I want you to see this. This is, this is nothing but good. Look at Luke. You're in Luke already, I guess. Chapter 22, verse 31. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. By the way, this is the same grammatical structure. When Jesus was praying for Simon, Glenn, he is praying for you. Erica, he was praying for you. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen the... He didn't mean when you're saved. He means when you get... It's, it's like you own an old barn out there in the field it's about to fall apart. And you go out there and you rebuild that thing. You've converted it. I want you to know something. Until I had my baptism with Holy Ghost fire, I wasn't nothing but an old barn falling down. Everybody thought I had it made. But I knew in my heart I didn't have it made. And I knew that I didn't like where I was at. And I knew that I wanted power with God. And buddy, I want to tell you, the one glorious thing about that Holy Ghost baptism of fire, I am not the man I used to be. Amen. Jesus said, I prayed for you. Preacher, I know you've been sick. Isn't it good to know Jesus is praying for you? <laughs> you out there, you're having marriage trouble. Aren't you glad Jesus is on his knees up in glory praying for you? Your money's running out. Aren't you glad Jesus is up there praying for you? Listen, I love Glenn. He may not get a prayer answered, but I'll tell you one who will, and his name is Jesus. He'll get a prayer answered for me. Amen. That's right. I got to close with this. A lot more I can say, but I got to close with this. I left North Jacksonville. Nobody could understand. I hope you can. I didn't have the anointing anymore. And as great a good as you've done this church, if you ever don't have the anointing, it's a wise man walks out. He anointed me to be an evangelist. So I was an evangelist for 15 years. Our team held more citywide and area-wide crusades than any team in the United States, literally, over the next 15 years. Then I got another anointing. That would be the president of a seminary. I did that. Now I'm not that anymore and he's anointed me again to be an evangelist. And I know the difference. Do you know the difference when you have the anointing? You just got that authority with you. This is my final thing. I was preaching at the great historic Centenary Methodist Church in Iceland, Kentucky. And the wealthiest man in that part of the country came up to me. He said, Preacher, I've given tens of thousands of dollars Actually, hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. I don't know what it is to have the power of God. I said, do you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? When it became Elijah's turn with his altar, what did he first do? He said, well, he poured water. And I said, no, he didn't. He rebuilt the old altar. Hey, folks, you can't skip altars. Hey, let me say that. You can't skip altars. You can't skip altars. If there's an altar back there in your life and you skipped out on God and you were a coward, you got to go rebuild that altar. I said, what's your altar? He said, when I was 21 years old, 50 years ago, God called me to preach. 
And I was scared I couldn't take care of my family. I said, you want the power of God? Yeah. Surrender to preach. He said, I can't do that. I'm in my 70s. I said, surrender to preach. He did the next Sunday. About three months later, I thought that Methodist had turned charismatic. <laughs> he called me on the phone. I've got it, preacher. The power of God is on me again. All right, I'm done. Look at me. I have two goals in life. If I die before Jesus comes, my body's laying out of your casket. I want my children, my grandchildren, my wife to come by and say he was real. He was real. If I'm still alive when Jesus comes, I want to look up at him as he's coming down and say, Jesus, I love you. And I want to hear him say, Harold, I know you do. Amen.